Hello, everyone. I bring greetings from Sydney in Australia. For 30 years, I have had a, a sister-in-law who was born in Penang. And all the time, she kept saying, you have to visit Penang. And for some reason, I ignored that. But can I say that I have 30 years of regret now. <laughs> I have had the most beautiful introduction to Penang. In the workshop, I talked fairly endlessly about food. Um, <laughs> but I have also had wonderful, wonderful hospitality from this church. And I want to say thank you. Thank you. I am so grateful uh, to Pastor Isaac and Pastor Thomas and Pastor Jeslyn and Pastor Wilson and all the pastors um, who have welcomed me and uh, made me feel so welcome here. Thank you so much. And thank you for the open hearts and the open minds that were at that workshop. I think we had a wonderful time together. I want to talk about our work as worship. But to begin with, I want you to think about the first major toy that you were given by your parents, the first big thing that you really, 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 really wanted, and then suddenly you had it. My brother was given a red fire truck, and it wasn't just your ordinary red fire truck, it was one of those pedal cars. You could actually sit in it and move along, and it came with a yellow fire hat, and it also came with a badge that said, driver. Very impressive. My first major toy that I asked for from my parents was a typewriter. <laughs> now that's quite strange, and I know that most of you don't even know what that is. <laughs> a typewriter is a sort of thing that was before computers. It only did one thing. How crazy is that? You just had it, you put some paper in it, and as you pressed down the keys of the alphabet, a metal thing would come up and press again against an inked ribbon and put a mark of a letter on a page. And as you wrote, if, even if you got towards the end of the page, if you made a mistake, you'd have to rip out the page and start again. Crazy stuff, crazy stuff for most of you. You can't even imagine. But this typewriter was my most beloved possession. You see, when I was three, I learnt how to read, and I learnt how to read from newspapers. And right then and there, I had this desire to be a journalist. And when I was given this typewriter, it was a portable typewriter, I thought, I am on my way. I am going to be a journalist. And I typed and typed and typed and learned how to type so I was really fast. And I dreamed of the day I would be a journalist. And then what happened was that I went to school and I did quite well and my grades were pretty good. In fact, I ended up being runner-up to ducks in high school. And I don't know you, about you guys, but when your grades are good, your parents start talking to you, don't they, about what career you might choose to have. Does that happen to anyone here? <laughs> well, you see, my brother was a doctor. Can you guess what my parents kept talking to me about? They wanted me to be a lawyer. <laughs> it's usually the next thing, huh? <laughs> so 
I thought my grades are good, maybe this is what I should be doing. Maybe I should become a lawyer. And in Australia, we get this thing that we get to do. We get to make a list of all the different things that we want to study. And you start at number one, your top priority, that I want to do law at University of Sydney. And then you put your other priorities. And down at number six, I put this journalism course. Anyway, I did my exams. I went to the beach. New Penang people, you know how good the beach is. And I'm lying on the beach, and I'm thinking about my life, a time of reflection, and I was praying about what God wanted me to do, and I had this strong sense, journalism. And I was thinking, oh no, I put law as number one. And I, I just had this sense, journalism. And there was a process that I could do where I could change my priorities. So I went back to home and I changed my priorities and I put journalism number one. Can you imagine how that went down with my family? <laughs> Can you imagine the conversation with my parents? But I had this sense that no, journalism had to be number one. Well, my parents, um, I think they're quite Western because they said to me, you can do whatever you want to do. I know that doesn't work <laughs> in every family. <laughs> But personally, I was very relieved. <laughs> so I went off and I started studying journalism. Well, I was there in journalism. I was doing my first semester of study. And one of my classes was a writing class. And I did my first assignment and I uh, handed it in. And I was called into the dean of the course's office. I had no idea what this was about. So I went into the office. And I sat down, and he said to me, you're a Christian, aren't you? And I thought, wow. I wasn't really sure how he figured that out. My story was called Resurrection. Um, <laughs> but actually, actually, you know, I, I didn't talk too much about Jesus in this story. It was sort of this story about being on a train and feeling really tired and weary, and then I saw... Um, this rainbow, and I saw all the colours and my heart lifted, and I, um, it just renewed my spirit. It was sort of the gist of the story. It went a lot longer than that. And he said, you're a Christian, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am a Christian. And he said to me, by the end of this course, either you won't be a Christian or you will have dropped out. He wasn't really into PR, I don't think. Um, <laughs> that was really hard to hear. I said, why? And he said, the things we teach here, it's not compatible with Christianity. You won't be happy here. You won't survive here. You will have to get out if you want to be a Christian. What a wonderful challenge. <laughs> right then and there, I said to myself, I am not going to be beaten. <laughs> right then and there, I just closed my eyes and I imagined the day when I would graduate and I would be able to tell him, ha ha, I am still a Christian. <sighs> so, in the Lord's providence, he linked me up with some other Christians. We met with each other, we encouraged each other and we decided we would survive this course. 
Now, during this course, there was a lot of anti-Christian, anti-church sort of material. They made fun of the church almost continuously. It was pretty tough. But by the end of the course, I had this wonderful moment where my journalism instructor said, there are many worldviews, and he said, and I have realized that Christianity is a worldview that's just as rational and sustainable as other worldviews. It was an amazing moment for me because it's the first time he had ever said anything positive about Christianity. I thought, well, at least he recognizes it as a valid worldview, even if he doesn't accept it as the worldview. So that was a great moment. So on graduation day, I did get to go up to the dean and say, I am still a Christian. <laughs> no, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> and I was also able to say, and Tracy and Jackie and Karen and Jeff, they're all Christians too. <laughs> he was a bit shocked, a bit surprised, but he said, you have made an impression, which was great. So when I actually got my first job as a journalist, I thought, heck, after uni, this is going to be really easy. <laughs> but I walked into that newsroom, and actually, it was, it was tough. It was really tough. Now, there were some things that were tough, as many of you who are in workplaces would find that are tough. Things like there's a, there was a lot of swearing, there was some innuendo and bad jokes that I just had to pretend I didn't hear. There were all sorts of things that were said. That was pretty tough. But there were also some pretty hard decisions that I had to make too. There was a lot of pressure. There was a pressure to exaggerate our stories. It was a really hard place. And I wondered, how am I going to survive as a Christian in this place? And I realized that I wasn't really equipped. I wasn't really empowered, I wasn't really prepared for this workplace. And I realized that every Sunday when I went to church, I wasn't hearing things that helped me prepare for this workplace. And that was hard. And right then and there, I realized that I needed to make it, I guess, part of my goal, that I would try and work out how faith and work went together how work and worship went together. And I would do that with Jesus. And that's what I've been doing for the last 20 plus years. So, when I say the word worship to you, what do you think about? What comes to mind? I want you just to share quickly with the person next to you what immediately comes to mind when you hear that word, worship. Go for it. Okay. I'm going to um, get you to put up your hands because uh, this is now a global poll that I'm conducting. Um, I want to know, who said music, singing, something like that? Did anyone say that? Yeah, a few people said that. Cool, cool. Who said church, church as a whole? A few people said that. Thank you. Who said reading your Bible? 
Okay, no one put up their hand at that. Okay, it's the B of your bliss, but that's okay. <laughs> Who said prayer? Did someone say prayer? And maybe there was something else as well. To be honest, I think most books that write about worship tend to focus on what we do, the things we do, whether it's our singing, whether it's going to church, whether it's our prayer, whether it's our Bible reading, whether it's about evangelism. These are all the sorts of things. I think worship is actually part of all those things, but also it's much more. And the key is in the verses that I'm going to be speaking to you from today. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. If you can access uh, your Bibles and see those words, I want you to have a look at them now. Now, if you think it's a bit extreme to have a sermon based on just two verses, I want you to know that the English preacher, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, actually preached 10 sermons on these two verses. So you guys are getting off lightly. Uh, but as you look that up, let me just pray for us that God would reveal himself. Please pray with me. Loving Lord, we want to love you and we want to serve you. Please help us to know how we can respond to this reading today. Please challenge us. Please teach us. Please mold us. Please purify us. Please make us whole in our thinking. Renew our vision for you. Renew our vision for your world. Please do a good thing in us and please glorify yourself. Amen. Okay, so let's have a look at these verses. Romans 12, starting at verse 1. And we'll, yep, beautiful. So it starts off, Therefore, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, there's a word there, a very important word. That word is therefore. Whenever you see therefore and you're reading the Bible, you know that what you have to do is actually look before the therefore. Because what the writer is saying is that in light of what has been said, I'm going to tell you something else. So I'm going to just quickly summarize Romans chapters 1 to 11 for you, just really quickly. So <laughs> let's see how we go as we roll through this. Um, and we have some slides to highlight it so you can follow with me. So what Paul has done in Romans is painted a beautiful picture about what faith is all about. And he starts off in Romans 1 and he talks about how God is revealing himself. And because God has revealed himself through his beautiful creation, then actually everyone should know. Everyone should know that there is a God. That everyone should have a sense of transcendence. And then in chapter 3, he has warned us that actually, although we reach for God, we can't reach for God because sin holds us back. Because of sin, we fall short. We fall short of where God is. And then in chapter 5, he tells us, but don't worry, this amazing thing has happened. 
Jesus has come and he's died for us. While we were still sinners, he died for us. And therefore, we are made right with God. And then in chapter 6, he tells us that we are actually dead to sin and we are alive in Christ. Hallelujah, we're alive in Christ. In chapter 7, he realizes that even though we are alive in Christ, we still sometimes struggle with sin. It sort of hampers us. But in chapter 8, he assures us that we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors, that nothing can separate us from the love of God because of what Jesus has done. And also in chapter 8, he has warned us that not just us, but all of creation is groaning. It wants to be made free, set free from the burdens that actually condemn it. And then chapters 9 to 11, sort of a tricky part for some people, but this is the part where it talks about God's people, the original people, the Jews, and how we as Gentiles have been grafted into God's great and glorious plan. And then we get to chapter 11. Just before we start now, we have this amazing doxology. Listen to this. This is just beautiful. Oh, the depth of the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and, and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And we all said, Amen. It's amazing. It reaches this crescendo where God is the supreme and awesome being. In him everything exists and has its being. Therefore, therefore it says, because of all of that, in light of this magnificent portrait of what God has done through Jesus, therefore... Brothers and sisters, sisters, we should offer our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. And what we recognize here is the language of law from the Old Testament. Sacrifice, that word that sums up the law, doesn't it? It reminds us of the law. People of Israel had to offer sacrifices to deal with the problem of sin. But instead of that, we know that we don't have to do that anymore. Because of what Jesus has done, because we have been saved by faith, because of Jesus' sacrifice, we are free to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And the Greek translation of that word sacrifice there actually means killing. So if you're reading it in the Greek, it actually says the living killing. The living killing. I'm sort of thinking zombies here, um, the living killing. But what Paul is actually doing is trying to shock his readers. He's trying to wake them up. After all, you know, this is chapter 12 in a really long letter. He's been reading it out. They're probably getting a bit tired, and he says, living killing. And it shocks them awake. What does he mean? How can this be? What does it mean? He's using rhetoric to talk about something dead and something living. But before we get to that, we need to talk about what Paul means about offering our bodies. Unfortunately, we've been influenced by Plato. 
That's a rather friendly guy up there on the screen. Plato didn't think bodies were a good thing. He didn't think the flesh was a good thing. He loved the soul, but he thought the flesh was weak and couldn't hold the beauty and wonder of the soul. And so he separated these two things. The flesh was a bad thing. But as Christians, we know that God actually loves our bodies. God is interested in our bodies. He lovingly crafted us while we were still in our mother's wombs. He loves how he has made us. And we also know that our bodies are called the temple of the Holy Spirit. How precious is that? So when Paul says offering our bodies, that's his shorthand way of saying Offer your whole self, everything you do, everything you do with this body, offer your whole self to God. Tim Keller points out that this sacrifice that we're talking about is a bit like the Old Testament sacrifice and it's unlike. So let's start with how it's unlike the Old Testament sacrifice. Now the Old Testament sacrifices were messy. There was blood. It was very messy. But Jesus has already completed that for us. There's no need for blood anymore. Jesus' blood, once and for all, has dealt with that problem. And that means that we're free to give a sacrifice, an offering of praise, rather than an offering of guilt or sin. Old sacrifices, the sacrifices in the law, were over and done with at the moment of the killing. But we're told to give a living sacrifice, to do it again and again and again. Every morning you wake up, you offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Every week, every month, every year, again and again, we offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice in gratitude for what God has done for us in Jesus. But there are some parts of it that are like the Old Testament sacrifices. So how is it like the Old Testament sacrifices? Well, it's like the Old Testament sacrifices because there is a death. What we need to die to is our will, our way, our way of choosing what we want to do. We have to be willing to sacrifice that, and that is hard sometimes especially in a world that says that you should do whatever you want. No, we need to put to death some of those desires. And that is hard. <laughs> that is troublesome. But here's the thing. We know that if we hand it over to God, he is one who knows us and loves us and wants the best for us in a way we can't even imagine. Frequently, we make a mess of our own lives going about it our own ways. But we can hand ourselves to God and know that and trust that he has a better way for us. So what is the good thing we can offer to God? What can we do with our bodies to please God? Well, I want to tell you about a couple that I met while I was down in Melbourne. They're Jason and Jen. This is not a picture of them, but actually it looked a lot like them, can I tell you? Jason and Jen actually had been uh, working in a gym. They were incredibly fit. 
They turned up to Bible college and they were bouncing along and they were bright-eyed and they were full of enthusiasm. This was in stark contrast to your average Bible college person, your pastors aside, but mostly they're thin, they're white, they read too much, they stay indoors and they've got glasses. These guys were amazing. They were really pumped. So they came to Bible college and they told me their story. What had happened was Jason was a manager of a gym and someone had come in to work out and this guy was a Christian and he talked to Jason as he was working out and they became friends. And then this guy, there was something about this guy that Jason just found so attractive, something about his life. And he said to this guy, what's different about you? What's unique about you? And this guy said, Jesus. Jesus is what makes me different. And Jason said, I want to find out more about this Jesus. What do I have to do? And this guy said, come to church. Come to church with me. So Jason went along to that church with Jen. And somehow, in the way that God does these things, the Holy Spirit broke through and their lives were transformed instantly. They just received Jesus. They understood immediately we have to give our lives to Jesus. Now, Jason and Jen, they were not your, you know, cup half full type people. They were not your reluctant being dragged to Jesus type people. They were your full on, we're going to be amazing for Jesus. We're going to be awesome for Jesus. Awesome, awesome, awesome. That was their whole mindset. So they went up to the pastor of this church and they said, we want to be 100% for Jesus. We want to be the best Jesus followers that there have ever been. What do we have to do? Well, this pastor said to them, what you have to do is sell your house and give the money to the church. And you have to go to Bible college and become missionaries if you want to be 100% for God. And they said, absolutely, we're going to do it. So they sold their house, they gave the money to the church, and they came along to Bible college to study to be missionaries, and they were going to go to Vietnam. So anyway, they were, they were just loving Bible college. They were so on track. And then one day I saw them, and they weren't their usual bouncy self. They actually looked a little bit sad. So I sat down with them, and I said, what's happened? And they explained to me they'd just been to a lecture where someone had told them about the priesthood of all believers. That's sort of a fancy way of saying that it's not just people who ordained who are priests, but anyone is a priest. And what you do makes you priestly when you actually commit yourself to God. And Jason looked at me and he said, do you mean that I could have been 100% Christian and still be a gym manager? And I said, yes, I believe so. And I said, but that's not the important thing. The important thing is actually that you pray and you ask God where he wants you to be. That's the important thing. You need to be doing what God wants you to do. So, I didn't see them for a week or so. I was a bit worried about them. But then they turned up again one day and I could see that some of the old bounce was back. Well, I sat down with them again and Jason explained to me, to me that he and Jen had decided that what they would do is that they would actually stay 
where they were and they would go back to their jobs, uh, that Jason would become a gym manager again. He said to me, I don't know how to learn new languages. He said, I wouldn't have a clue what to do overseas. He said, but I sure know how gyms run and I know that I can talk to people about Jesus in those gyms. He said, I'm going to go back to being a gym manager. And I said, well, that is fine. The important thing is you are doing what you feel God is calling you to do. You're offering your whole body to God. The next story I want to tell you about is a story about a man called Peter. His name is Peter Corney. He's really famous in Melbourne. He was a great church planter and he was part of the church growth movement. He wrote books on it and he was very, very popular. Lovely man. Well, one day I was speaking at a conference with Peter and I talked to him and I talked to him about some of the things I've just talked to you about. And I was standing there in front of Peter Corney, sort of really exciting. And then I went to sit down and he leaned over to me. And part of me was really nervous because I thought, what's he going to say to me? He's going to say I should have told Jason and Jen to be missionaries or I should have, I didn't know what he was going to say. And he leaned over to me and he said to me, I didn't want to be a pastor. <laughs> I went, what? He said, I never wanted to be a pastor. I said, what do you mean? And he said, I was a businessman. He said, I was good at business. I love doing business. And he said, but God called me. He said, I wasn't peaceful in business anymore because I knew where God wanted me to be. And he said, and I am happiest where God wants me to be. And I went, phew. And I said, I won't tell anyone else that you didn't want to be a pastor. Except that I've now told all of you, but anyway. <laughs> the important thing is that you actually follow your calling, that you actually give your whole body to where you feel God has called you to be. We have to sacrifice our ideas of what it means to please God. We need to ask God to reveal his plan to us. And that is what true worship is. True worship is actually true service. Some of the Bible translations use that, true service. You see, worship is a really complex idea. In the Old English, it actually is word sheep, which means worthiness or meritoriousness. And in the Bible, we see it used in a whole load of different ways and different sorts of senses. It talks about service associated with work done in the temple it talks about an offering for others. It talks about service and sacrifice, a posture of submission, literally bowing or lying down, acknowledging God's sovereignty. Every time that God appears to someone, they worship. <laughs> so worship can actually be something corporate, something we all do together, but it can also be something personal. It took place in the temple, but it also often took place in, um, outside the temple. God doesn't intend that worship only be connected with a certain place at a certain time. Worship actually starts in here, inside, in our hearts. That's where worship begins. You might remember uh, this picture, this story, this time when Jesus was talking to a woman, a Samaritan woman at the well. 
And Jesus tells her that we are in a new kingdom where we are to worship God in spirit and in truth from the inmost part of who we are. So what Paul is actually picking up in Romans 12 is what he is actually taught right from the beginning of the Bible, right from Genesis. In Genesis 2, the very first thing that God tells humanity to do is to work the earth and to keep the garden. And the words that are actually used there, the Hebrew root words are avad and shamar. Vard and Shema are the same Hebrew words that are used later in Numbers to talk about what happens when you're in the temple. But there they're translated as worship or serving God and keeping the commandments. But you can see right at the very beginning we have this link between what we do, the work that we do, and worship, how we honour the God who created us. Our work was always meant to be something that we do to honour God and to serve others. And that is why I called my book Workship. Yes, it's a made-up word. And can I just tell those budding entrepreneurs that if you make up a word, you get to number one on the Google list? Excellent. Anyway, but I wanted to use that word because Workship actually combines the things we often treat as separate. Our work and worship, they belong together. They were there together at the beginning of Genesis. They're meant to be together still. I want to challenge people. I want to challenge people about how you integrate your faith and your work. I want you to think about it and think about how you can do that in more ways, in creative ways, in the work, in the context where you're placed. And by the way, when I say work, don't just think about your paid work. That's not how God sees work. God sees work as anything you do with intent or purpose. It may be paid, it may be unpaid, maybe in a workplace, it may be in the community, it may be in your home. Work. He wants you to see it as your means, your way of actually worshipping God. I think we have a choice that sometimes we want to separate these things out, that we see our work as different to what we do in church. But actually, all of them should have the same heart, the heart of God. We should actually seek to worship God through our work. And if we don't do that, if we don't do that consciously, if we don't do that intentionally, you know what happens? Sometimes we begin to worship our work instead. And that is a big problem because then we begin to cut God out from the very thing that he could use to honour himself, the very thing he could use to show people what he is like and to bring people to himself. There was a time when people had to work to live, when work was just about sustenance, just trying to survive. But what happens these days is that people live to work. We try and make work much more than it should be, it's a place where we find our meaning and purpose. Our meaning and purpose and identity should always be found in God. That's where it really belongs. We have this amazing privilege of actually honouring God at work. We need to be conscious that God is actually the one we truly work for. We have a human boss, but don't worry about them. 
<laughs> well, we we'll worry a bit, but, <laughs> but actually we work for God. He is our true Lord and Master. He is our true employer. He's the one that we need to think about. We seek to serve him. We seek to serve others through our working. And while we work, every activity we do, every word we say, every relationship that is formed, we seek to work with God in that. We seek to offer it to God in gratitude for the privilege of working for him. We need to escape from the pattern of the world. That's what Romans 12 is talking about, this pattern where we begin to think that our worship is self-focused. Our worship should always be God-focused. We need to offer our whole selves to him. We need to humble our hearts to be used by God in service to him and others. Jason and Jim were told there was a specific plan you had to do to be an excellent Christian. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says, offer your whole self. And in offering your whole self, you're offering something that is unique. Because here's the thing. There's only one of you. There's only one of you who has the specific set of amazing experiences and giftings, the different things that you've learned, things that you've gone through, the relationships you have. You are unique. And in your working, you can be uniquely used by God to reach others, to do things that you perhaps can't even imagine now. God needs you. He needs you to devote your work to him and to be used by him. You need to bring it under his sovereignty. So you need to think about a few things right now. I want you just to think about this. How will you respond to this? How does thinking of worshipping God through your work, paid or unpaid, wherever it is, how does that make you think about your life differently? How does that make you think about your work differently? How will you live different as a result of what God has placed in your heart? I want you just to take a moment and just close your eyes and just have a talk to God about some of those things. How do you see your life differently? How do you see your work differently? How might you live different, worshipping God through your work? I hope and pray that God has done some work in your heart as you've been thinking about that. Um, and I'm sure he will keep prompting you as you open yourself up to him. I want to finish with a quote that I actually shared with anyone who was in the workshop earlier. It's a wonderful quote about what worship is. It's a quote from William Temple, who was head of the Anglican Church in the 1940s. He said, Worship is the submission of all our nature, our whole bodies, as it were, to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, 
the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose. And all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable and therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness, which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. You see, if we come before God and just adore him, it will stop us thinking about ourselves and what we want. We will lose ourselves in worship, as I saw some of us doing earlier. So how do we do this? What are some ideas just to get us started on this? How can we start Monday morning, maybe even tomorrow morning, maybe even tonight? What are we going to do? Okay, three quick ideas for application. I want you to start every day saying, good morning, Jesus, how can we work together today? Can I just say that the first time you say that, that would feel really weird, but <laughs> it's a lovely thing to say. When you wake up and you just dedicate that time to Jesus, good morning, Jesus, how are we going to work together today? It would just get you in that whole mind frame, I'm working with Jesus today. Number two, I want you to start reading your Bible, watching out for how it talks about work. The Bible has heaps in it about work and how we should work and the way that God describes himself working and how Jesus uses all these examples of different sorts of work and workplaces. I'll be exploring some of that in some of the other sermons that I talk about. But if you start reading your Bible, you'll be amazed at what you start to see. And thirdly, I want you to try and buddy up with someone. You have your cell group who are supporting you, but I want you to really find maybe one or two other people and you agree to pray with each other about your work. After the workshop, I was approached by several people who are really struggling at work, who are really anxious about some of the things that lie ahead. We need people to walk closely alongside us through those really challenging times. So have someone, maybe two people, that you can just meet with and pray about the work that you do and see the work that God starts to do in your midst as you do that. So start each morning, say, good morning, Jesus. I'm looking forward to working with you today. Read your Bible and see how work jumps out at you. And then thirdly, link up with one or two other people to pray for each other. I would like to pray for us now, uh, just to close in prayer. And I'm going to pray through Eugene Peterson's version of those two verses in Romans 12, 1 to 2 in the message version. So please join me. Father God, we know that this is what you want us to do with your help. You want to take our everyday, our ordinary life, our sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life, and you want us to place it before you as an offering. Embracing what you do for us is the best thing we can do for you. Lord, guard us from becoming so well adjusted to our culture that we fit into it without even thinking. Instead, Lord, we pray that you will help us to fix our attention on you. In this way, please change us from the inside out. Help us to readily recognize what you want from us, and help us to quickly respond to it. We know that the culture around us can drag us down to its level of immaturity, but you, God, bring out the best in us. You want to develop well-formed maturity in us. 
And we ask particularly for the work that we do, paid or unpaid, wherever we focus our energies and passion, that you would take that work as our offering to you, that you would show us how we can work with you, through you, in your strength, and to the glory of your magnificent name. May we daily worship you. And we all said, Amen. Amen.